Well, if you want to open your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 59, we're just going to kind of begin there. So I found out about Andrew being unable to speak. Uh, for me, anyway, it was somewhat last minute. Um, found out on Friday evening. And um, so I, I was thinking just what, what I might be able to share that, uh, and Andy had the suggestion of, of maybe kind of springboarding off of what I've already been sharing with the children in these uh, little children devotional times. And so Friday evening as I was thinking about that, I kept coming back to this verse here in Isaiah 59, verse 2. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. And uh, just uh, felt like the Lord would have me to share from this, which is really in many ways kind of a, a gospel message. Um, and so it's, it's a simple truth, but something that I think we all need to be reminded of. So I pray that the Lord will um, apply it to, to all of our lives. So we'll read here from Isaiah 59, just going to read the first two verses. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And what I'd like to to share on this morning is just basically two truths here. The first being that sin separates us from God. And then the second, which we'll obviously use a different passage for this, is that Christ brings us back to God. So those two truths, sin separates us from God, but Christ brings us back to God. So beginning here with this thought of the separation from God, um, I was thinking about just this idea that sin is so destructive. Uh, it has an appeal. You know, there's a, there's a fleshly appeal to sin in many ways. There would be no temptation to sin if sin was utterly repulsive to us, right? You're not tempted to do things that you don't want to do. There's an appeal there. There's a draw there to the flesh. Um, and we see that in, in Hebrews 11.25 when it's speaking of Moses, it says um, you know, that he forsook the passing pleasures of sin. So even the Bible acknowledges there's, there is pleasure there. But it's passing, it's fading, it doesn't last, it doesn't truly satisfy. But we do know this, that sin comes at a great cost. And one of the costs of sin is that it affects us relationally. It hinders, it comes in like a wedge and it divides. And we see here in this verse, in verse 2, that sin separates us from God. But I was thinking about this, that sin also has an effect on our earthly relationships as well. It divides. Relationships are hurt. They are even wrecked by sin. And think about this. Think about how sin affected the relationship of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. So going back to the Garden of Eden, the very beginning, here Adam and Eve are created 
um, in a perfect environment, no sin whatsoever. And that's where they begin. And think about that relationship. I don't know how long they were in the garden before, um, before they sinned, um, but I, I imagine it, it was at least for a number of days. I don't know. I mean, we really can't tell from Scripture. But imagine if, especially if, you're, uh, if you yourself are married, can you imagine the relationship with your spouse if there was no sin, no wrong thoughts about the other person, no hurtful words, no careless actions, no offense whatsoever, just that perfect harmony, that perfect relationship because there's no sin. Instead, there would be complete peace. There would be total trust. There would be pure love for one another. And I can imagine that's what Adam and Eve were experiencing together before the fall. But what happened after the fall? Instead of the wife joyfully submitting to the husband, she began to want to rule over him. And that's what what part of the curse of the fall was. She wanted to control him. And instead of the husband lovingly and sacrificially leading his wife, he began to harshly rule over her in an unloving way. So you see, there was an immediate effect in the relationship between one another. And then came Cain and Abel. And again, they, they were born into the world after sin, but you can imagine, if you're a parent, what it would be like to raise a child without sin. No fights between siblings, no squabbles, again, no hurtful words, no mean attitudes, Just that, what sin does to relationships in our children or our relationships between one another. But because of their sin, Adam and Eve did bring Cain and Abel into a world with sin. And even with sin in the picture, though, think about this. The relationship of family is probably the closest earthly relationship that we have. We can't imagine a closer earthly relationship than what exists within a family. But Cain and Abel, as brothers, they were raised together. They played together. They worked together. Think about this. There were no other friends. It was Cain and Abel. They did everything together in that sense. Yet even in this close-knit relationship, you see how sin came in and completely shattered this union of family. Cain raised up and killed his brother Abel. So what about us for today? Has sin affected the relationships we're in? Absolutely it has. What about the relationship with our spouse? What about the relationship with our kids? Or the relationship with siblings? Or the relationship with extended family? Or the relationship with friends and acquaintances? We may not have experienced the murder in a family like Cain and Abel, but we can all say with certainty that sin has caused divisions in every one of these relationships because sin divides. It never unites. You never have a a relationship that you feel like, you know what, because of sin this relationship is so much better. You always look back and say, because of sin this relationship is so much harder. It divides. It, it's, it really is destructive. 
But even more importantly than just the relational issue that sin causes within these earthly relationships, we see that sin separates us from God. And that's getting back here to our verse here, Isaiah 59.2. Think about the effect that sin had on the relationship between Adam and God. Prior to the fall, there was peace between Adam and God. After the fall, in Genesis 3, it talks about the Lord God was walking in the garden. And Adam and Eve, you know, they've just committed the sin. And they hide themselves from God and they hear him walking in the garden. I get the idea from reading that, that it it almost sounds as though this this was normal for God to be walking in the garden. You get the idea, the picture in one sense of God and Adam together walking in the garden, just that complete peace that they had, the fellowship that they had with one another. But what happens after the fall? God came walking, and Adam and Eve hide themselves from God. There was now fear, and then God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden entirely. And to understand God's response to Adam by driving him away from the presence of God We need to understand something about God, and that is God's holiness. In Psalm 5, if you want to turn there, there's a couple verses that I think um, really show us clearly this idea of the holiness of God as it pertains to um, sin. Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5 says, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. This is really amazing to to see how clear this is. You do not take pleasure in wickedness. You know, mankind takes pleasure in wickedness. We, oftentimes we rejoice in things that we ought to be sorrowful over. And certainly you see that in the lost world. They glory in their shame. God doesn't. He does not take pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. So that, that has the idea that no evil is within God, but there's also this idea of dwelling. God isn't going to dwell with one who is evil. Adam was thrown out of the garden. Adam had fell into sin and is cast out of the garden. No evil can dwell with God. And then this, the end of verse 5 there, you hate all who do iniquity. That's, that is strong language, but it shows the holy nature of God. God's holy nature means that he hates sin. He cannot tolerate evil. And it really was a mercy that he drove Adam out of the garden because had Adam stayed in the garden, he would have been consumed um, had he remained in the presence of God. God cannot dwell with wickedness, with evil. So sin has divided relationships between one another and sin has separated us from God. So what then is the remedy? How is all of this fixed? 
If sin is the reason for the relationship problems, then it seems logical to say, stop sinning, right? If sin is causing division, stop sinning, and things should come back together, right? Um, Try and become a better person so that you will no longer be separated from God. Start living a sinless life so that all your relationship problems will be fixed and so that you will be restored to a right relationship with God. Is that the answer? Is it just, you know, do something in yourself to make yourself a better person so that God will be pleased with you and that you can have a right relationship with him again? Well, obviously the answer is no. Um, First of all, can you live a perfectly sinless life? Can you in your own strength put to death every evil thought Can you tame your tongue and never again say an unkind word? James 3 says that is impossible. In James 3.8 he says no one can tame the tongue. So it's, it's impossible for us to live in our own strength to live a perfectly sinless life. And then on top of all that, how good are our good works? Isaiah 64 doesn't paint a very good picture of our good works either. It says, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So here we are trying to, trying to drum up righteousness in our own strength, and we bring it before the Lord, and to him it's a filthy garment. We cannot manufacture righteousness in our own strength. Even our attempts at being righteous are sin in and of themselves. And why is that? It's because it comes from a heart of pride. If you're trying to do something thinking that it's acceptable to God, you're you're deluded, you're deceived. That's pride that is welling up within a person to make them think that they're good enough in themselves um, to stand before the Lord. But let's assume for just a minute that we could live a perfectly sinless life from this moment on. So just from now, the present, into the future, if we could stop sinning, how would that affect our separation from God? It wouldn't affect it at all because it doesn't change the fact that we have a bad record of sin. We already have sinned. And our sinless perfection, if it were even possible, doesn't begin to pay for the sins that we've already committed in the past. As long as there is sin on our account, we cannot have peace with God. And so this is a very bleak picture, but it leads to a wonderful truth. We cannot do anything to reconcile ourselves to God. But that's just the beginning. And for the remainder of our time here, I want to consider how Christ is able to bring us back into fellowship with God. And for the first verse I want to look, or first section, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This is a very familiar passage. And I'd like to read uh, a good portion of this, but I'm going to stop and comment a little bit as we go through it. So Ephesians chapter 2 and 
beginning in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so these first three verses I would categorize as just saying dead in trespasses and sins. That's the, that's the start of, uh, of the story. This is the beginning of our spiritual journey, and that is dead in trespasses and sins. But then it goes on, verse 4, but God. And I love that transition right there. Here's the beginning of it. You're dead. You bring nothing to this. Was it Spurgeon, I think, that said the only thing that you bring to, um, someone might have to help me with that, the only thing you bring to your salvation is the, the, the sin that, that Christ forgave or that Christ died for. I mean, that's the reality of it. We don't, we don't contribute anything to salvation other than coming dead in our trespasses and sins. But here's the transition. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre- uh, prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We'll continue on in just a moment here, but I was also noticing here in verse 4 where it says, but God, the reality of it is this salvation is authored by God himself. He is the one who initiates our salvation. God is, not us. It's not us coming and asking for salvation and God convincing God of our worthiness of salvation. God is the one who authors it. It's his idea. It is a gift, and we see that here. It's grace. It's not a result of anything that we do. It is completely a gift. Then going on, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we'll stop right there for now. But notice there... um, In verse 12, it says, you were at that time separate from Christ. That's what we're talking about here, this idea of separation from God. 
Our sin has separated us from God. But then you see the contrast there in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Separated because of sin, brought near because of the blood of Christ. So in the children's message uh, earlier, uh, we talked about how Christ was our substitute. He took our sin upon himself and took the punishment of death that we deserved. And the question was asked, why did Jesus die for us? For what purpose did he die? And and 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. That is the reason that Christ died, that he might bring us to God. Without his sacrificial death on our behalf, we would still be separated from the presence of God. But through his death, he has brought us to God. He has brought us into fellowship with God. Without Christ, we would still be entirely separated from God. There would be no hope ever of being in a right relationship with God. But because of Christ, he has brought us to God. And there's two more passages that I want to look at and just briefly comment on. The next one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Darren actually, I believe, read uh, from this chapter. We're going to be reading a few verses that appear a little earlier in the chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, against them, I'm sorry, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So again, notice in this passage who is initiating this reconciliation. Who was the author? Who was the one who initiated it? Well, it says there, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Apart from God initiating this reconciliation, we would still be separated from God. We would still be under the wrath of God because of our sin. So when did this plan of reconciliation begin? If God is the author of it, when did it begin? Well, since God is eternal, I think we could say that this plan of salvation, this plan of reconciliation began in eternity past. But when did we first hear of this plan of reconciliation? In the first place, at least in the Bible that we see it, is in Genesis 3, right after the fall. God tells of the seed of the woman who would crush Satan's head. And we know that's, that's representative of Christ. But how would he crush Satan's head? How was Jesus, how would Christ crush Satan's head? By dying in the place of fallen man. And that's the substitution we talked about earlier with the children. He died in our place 
for our sins. He crushed Satan's head. The power of, of death over us is no longer there if the sin has been atoned for. And when Christ came, he died for sin. For the, for the believer, he died for sin. And that sin is no longer accounted to us. There is no longer the wrath of God upon us. He died for our sins. Notice also in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5 here, it says that God has accomplished this reconciliation through Christ. And I know for myself, I can oftentimes wrongly think of God the Father as an angry judge and then Jesus the Son as this loving Savior who's come to come between the angry judge and the fallen man and to reconcile. And there is truth in that. I don't want to deny the truth in that, but if we're not careful, we can begin to only think of God as an angry father, an angry judge. But what we need to see here from this is that God the Father has planned this salvation. It was his idea, and he accomplished it through Christ. The Father has reconciled us to himself through Christ. You see that the love of the Father, that he would send his Son to reconcile us to himself. And you see that in John three sixteen. God, who's that speaking of? God the Father so loved the world that he gave his Son. God's love is shown through him sending Christ. And certainly Christ's love is shown to us by him willingly dying for us. But let's not forget the Father's love that he sent his Son. God is the author of our salvation. Well, the the final verse that I'd like to look at is in Romans 5. Just a few verses here, actually. Romans 5, verse 1, and then jump down to verse 6. So verse 1, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then jumping down to verse 6, and uh, 6 and following, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So notice here in this section, Paul says in verse 1 that we are justified by faith. And then in verse 9, at least in my translation here, it says, having now been justified by his blood, by Christ's blood. So which is it? Justified by faith or justified by, his, by Christ's blood? Well, we are justified by faith in Christ's finished work. It's not one or the other, it's both. We're justified by faith, by trusting, by putting our, our, our hope, putting everything in the finished work of Christ. 
We are declared righteous. That's what justified means. Declared righteous by placing our faith in the blood of Christ. And notice then the result of faith in Christ there in verse 1. Having been justified by faith, and I think we could add, add to that faith in Christ, in his finished work, we have peace with God. Think of the contrast we saw there in Isaiah 59. Our sin has made a separation between us and God. But because of Christ's death, we can have peace with God. What a wonderful thing. Peace with God. Is there any greater gift than this? To have peace with God. What earthly comforts and pleasures truly satisfy if we know that we are separated from God. You may have some comforts here in this life, but in the in the eternity to come, is that are those comforts going to satisfy you when you're cast out of the presence of God, when you're eternally separated from God? But on the other hand, what earthly trials and hardships really matter if we know that we do have peace with God? Yes, there are many hardships. There are many trials in this life. But what a comfort, what a joy to know that we have peace with God. No matter what comes, when we stand before God, we're not going to be standing any longer before an angry judge. We're going to be standing before a loving father. Think about the phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. That's peace with God, to be to be welcomed into his presence instead of cast out for eternity. Well, just in closing, um, I was thinking of this. There is nothing that can change your status of being at peace with God. If you are at peace with God because of faith in Christ, there is nothing that can change that. And just a few chapters down in Romans 8, at the end of the chapter here, very familiar uh, section, Verse 35, Romans 8:35, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Talk about a list of some hard trials, some hard things to face for a person in this life. But then he goes on in verse 38 and says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word comes up again here. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. What a glorious thing. We've just talked about one thing that does separate us from from God is sin. But here Christ has come in and died in our place so that we can have peace with God. And now it says, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what a glorious contrast for the believer and for anyone who is not a believer. Think of this. You are in a place right now where you are separate from God. You are not in fellowship with God. There is not a right standing with you before God. But because of Christ, there can be. You can come. You can 
Place your trust, your hope in what Christ has done, not in what you bring, not in what you've done, but what Christ has done, and you can be at peace with God. Christ died to bring us to God. Well, Dad, would you close us in prayer here?